Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Welcome to Skylight Books, everyone. Uh, we are here tonight to talk about and celebrate the release of Yuri Herrera's new book, A Silent Fury. Um, it's a fantastic book. I read it in a single plane ride and um, it really stuck with me. I think it encapsulates a lot of things that we're seeing, you know, coming to their full flower right now um, here at, the, at, at late capitalism. Um, and it's just uh, a really important and necessary work. So we're so happy to have Yuri here tonight. Um, Yuri is going to be in conversation with John Gibbler. Uh, I'm gonna introduce them both with their full bios in a moment. Um, I just wanna say hello. Hi, welcome. <laughs> um, so tonight, uh, I just wanted to say again, thank you all for being here. Um, I know there's a lot going on in the world right now. So it means a lot that you've um, made some time for literature in your evening. Uh, Skylight Books, if you don't know, is an independent bookstore in Los Feliz uh, in Los Angeles, California. We're right now, uh, we've just reopened for in-store browsing um, with masks and social distancing. Uh, we're open every day from 10 to 5 and we also do contactless curbside pickup where we take online orders, skylightbooks.com. Um, so you can get all of your favorite books from us um, and support a great neighborhood institution. All right, um, we are, one, one more announcement is, um, this is one of our last events we're gonna do on Zoom. Uh, we're about to switch over to Crowdcast. Um, you can check out our new page over there. I'm gonna, I'll put the link in the chat, but it's crowdcast.io slash skylightbooks. Um, we're gonna be moving over there uh, just cause it's a little bit easier <laughs> to manage. Um, and we're really excited about that. So we hope you'll uh, follow our page and, and stay tuned for more great events coming up this summer. All right, without further ado, John Gibbler lives and writes in Mexico. He is the author of I Couldn't Even Imagine That They Would Kill Us, an oral history of the attacks against the students of Ayotzinapa, Mexico, Unconquered, Chronicles of Power and Revolt, To Die in Mexico, Dispatches from Inside the Drug the drug war and torn from the world. His work on Ayotzinapa has been published in California Sunday Magazine and featured on NPR's All Things Considered. Born in Actopan, Mexico in 1970, Yuri Herrera studied politics in Mexico, creative writing in El Paso, and took his PhD in literature at Berkeley. His first novel to appear in English, Signs Preceding the End of the World, was published to great critical acclaim in 2015 and included in many best of year lists, including The Guardian's Best Fiction and NBC News' 10 Great Latino Books, going on to win the 2016 Best Translated Book Award. He is currently teaching at the Tulane University in New Orleans. Yuri and John, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thanks so much, Maddie. Thank you very much, Maddie. All right, Yuri, you want to uh, start us off with a, a short reading? Sure. Well, uh, first of all, thank you all for, for uh, getting online. It's, this is, uh, for me, really amazing that you take time uh, from your lives to, to do this. It's, it's always a privilege. And I have done a reading um, years ago in, in Skylight Books uh, um, in person, but, uh, well, anyway. This is, this is really nice. So thank you very much. I'm gonna read just a couple of pages um, uh, from the first chapter. This is uh, a book about um, a fire in a mine in, in Pachuca in 1920. 
and I'm just setting up that, that the main thing that happens is that there is a fire and very soon after the fire starts, the administrators of, of the mine decide that they have to save the mine by closing off uh, the, the entry to the mine, all, all exits to, to stop the, ox the oxygen to feed in the fire. So they do that. And the, the whole first chapter is a description of how the miners dis discover the fire, how they react, how they start helping each other to get out. And this is the, at the end of this first chapter. It's unclear what time it was when they decided there was no one left alive. But by noon, there was already a plan in place to ring up as a corpse, anyone still in the mine. The report in which mine administrators notified the authorities that a fire broke out and that all possible measures were taken to put, out, to put it out, least no, least no time. But it was received at 10 minutes past 11 in the morning. In that report, there is no mention of having sealed or sealing or being about to seal the mine. Despite there being no official time when the shafts were sealed with people, with people still inside the mine, there is one statement taken by a reporter for El Universal from miner Delfino Rendon, who said that just 20 minutes after the miner's rescue began, out of the blue, the supervisors gave the order to hold operations and the entrances were closed. This means they would have sealed the shafts at just after 7.20 before many of the men were even aware that they needed to get out. Given that it was seven o'clock when Cager Agustin Hernandez, who was in charge of getting people down and bringing them, them up, confirmed that, that the smell was indeed smoke. It would take days for them to verify the exact number of men still inside. And of those, they would never learn how many were still alive when the, when the shafts were sealed. Yet, in very little time, they managed to calculate what it cost to have the mine closed. Soon after the fire, Mariano Andres Fernandez, a Spanish tycoon, as Excelsior called him, told El Universal that this was not some common fire, but a very serious incident whose ramifications cannot be measured. He then went on to declare that the mine extracted 14,000 tons of metal per month, valued at 500,000 pesos to 600,000 pesos, and that it would take three months minimum for normal production to resume. So the shafts were sealed at 7.20, or at 10, or at noon, or at 4. And Judge Manuel Navarro ordered an investigation. But not about that. Not about who closed the shafts, or at what time, or what criteria the administrators had used to ensure that the last miners made it out, but about the cause of the fire. That was the purpose of the preliminary investigation opened in the very hours when they might have reasoned the most pressing question was how many people could still be alive inside the mine. But the decision to begin the investigations with this, other with this other objective came about in what seemed almost a natural fashion, the result of a series of rational consultations. The judge heard Barry's statement, Barry is like the, uh, the main administrator of the mine, and Barry had heard doctors Manuela Siain and Guillermo Spinola, who were of the opinion that due to the carbonic gas trapped in the mine, it could not be expected that any workers still, da still down below, below at 12 o'clock were alive, since, quote, it would take no longer than five minutes for them to die in that gas. So he had authorized them to, to seal the shafts, which had likely already been sealed. The question as to whether the number of dead miners was 10 or 42, therefore, was merely academic. By 12 o'clock, they had already decided that all of those still underground were dead, and were, there was no other possibility. Six days later, when the mouths of the shafts were opened, as promised, and they went in to bring up the corpses, not only did they discover that there were 87 men, not 10 or 42, but that seven of the miners on level 207 were still alive. So that's how it ends, the, the, the first chapter of of the book. Thanks so much, Yuri, for, for reading. And <clears throat> thanks, Maddie, Skylight Books, and Yuri for inviting me to, to participate in this conversation. Um, I reread your book, Yuri, this morning to prepare some questions to ask you. Um, but to start out, I just want to comment that 
I've been a reader and admirer of Yodi's fiction for, for many, many years. Um, and when I saw the first edition of this book come out in Spanish at a, a new releases table at a bookstore in Mexico City, uh, immediately grabbed it, bought it, sat down right there with a coffee and read it. Um, and as with Yuri's fiction, where so many times the narrative is circulating through what can't be said, what people strain to say, uh, what people don't say, uh, I found in this book uh, his effort and his circulation and movement through what an archive silences, what the state uh, and the mining company try to make impossible to say. Um, and with that, I, I, uh, I want to ask you about a distinction you make, Yuri, very early on in the book. You write, quote, the file and news stories, the case file and the news stories do not simply convey the events, but are fragments of the events. They are part of the tragedy and the way its official version was imposed. So I'd ask if you could tell us a bit about that distinction you're making between uh, a representation of events and a text as a part of the event itself, the tragedy or the atrocity. Well, what um, the main source for uh, that we have to know what happened is this file, um, Pachuca 1920-66, which is the, the judicial file about, about the investigation. And the file um, is a file that is uh, the official truth, the legal truth. And they would like to, to, to think about it as, as the historical truth, you know? Like it, it, would, it would finish the whole case. Um, and it is a very organic document in the sense that it does what it's supposed, uh, supposed to do and never deviates. And the, the problem only starts when you start questioning what this document is doing. And what this document is doing is just not looking in certain directions and looking very hard in, in, in some other directions and not even considering a different way of understanding uh, what, what, what happened there. So for me, the, the fact that, for instance, the owners of the mine or the, um, um, besides one of them, the other American administrators were never cross-examined, were never interrogated. Uh, while the widows of the workers uh, were cross-examined uh, extensively so that they would prove that they were who, who they said they were in order to receive some compens compensation. For me, that is part of the story. Not the explicit narrative that the file is telling us about what happened, but who they decided who had that had to, to, to answer some questions and who was never, never ever considered as someone who had, had to answer some questions. For me, that is not only uh, a gap in, this, in the investigation, it's a very solid, concrete part of this story because it, it, um, it tells you a lot about the state of justice in this moment, about how there are certain people whose lives are uh, dispensable and certain, certain people whose lives uh, cannot be bothered, you know? And for me, that was as important as knowing certain things as, uh, as uh, the number of people who died or, or, um, or the times in which, in, in which the, uh, this happened. So uh, this kind of text is saying a lot, not only in what it's saying explicitly, but what in also in what it's not saying, or in what it, or when it's using euphemisms, or in how it it picks uh, certain categories of, of citizens for for different kinds of approaches uh, from the law. You know, I've been thinking a lot about. I mean, this practice of yours, which I'm going to ask a few more questions about, is not only a historical practice, or not only a, a practice that uh, we can use to interrogate. Um, and kind of counterattack uh, state archives and historical documents. But I've been thinking a lot about in these days of rebellion, flat out people in the streets every day fighting against anti-black violence and police murder, and thinking of the, the generation of this violence, say from Trayvon Martin to George Floyd, where you have police reports and, and official state actions producing impunity, right? Producing the legal verdict 
that murder wasn't murder, right? And thinking of ways in which we can interrogate autopsy reports and uh, case files that are not a hundred from a hundred years ago, but that are being produced right now and do some of these same techniques to counteract the way in which impunity gets produced through the law, right? And, and in that sense, I want to ask you, um, what kinds of reading, researching, what techniques uh, do you use to uh, subvert the archive of the perpetrators, the archive of complicity or of atrocity? Well, uh, first of all, I, I have to say that um, it's exactly what you say. Impunity is never an accident. Impunity is part of a system. It's a different thing when, when the, uh, the, there, there could be a difference of opinions about what happened, in, what, what happened uh, regarding a certain event. But we talk, when we talk about impunity, we're talking about a way in which certain people, yes, can get away with what they do, and they, and, and they are not concerned uh, with the law. And what I would say is that we, we cannot just uh, accept the official, the official versions as written in stone as if the people who are doing it were just like these functions of, of some scientific uh, obje objective uh, machine, you know? But we have, to, we have to think that in, 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 in every society, institutions don't work in the same way towards different, different kinds of, of citizens. And I think of this book as part of the genealogy of impunity in Mexico. Because sometimes we think that now we have a problem of impunity as if it's something that just happened, as if it's something that is a flaw. It's something that is a problem in the institutions and not part of the institutions. And what I'm saying is in this book that uh, impunity was also part of a sort of institutional learning, you know, an, institution, an, an institutional development of how to make certain lies uh, acceptable in legal terms and acceptable in historical terms. So one way to, to confront this is, well, of course, not just limiting ourselves to the information that is, that is given there, but more than that is to just confront that information with its own logic. So I would say I, I I heard about story this story for the first time uh, from my my brother Tonatiu, who is also uh, a historian, and he has been he had been researching about this for for many years, and at some point when I decided that I wanted to to research this story, I started asking around, and a lot of people had vague notions about the story. They had what I would say was a poetic understanding of the, of the story. They didn't have the exact numbers, they didn't have the exact dates, they didn't have the, the, the names, but they knew what had happened. And what had happened was there was a fire and the owners of the mine, instead of trying to save the miners, decided to close it off. So, and every person that I talked at the beginning, they would, they would say a number that would express the amount of pain or outrage that each of them would have in terms of that's how they would remember how bad this was. So some people told me, yeah, there was 400 people died, who died. And some people told me yeah, there was 20 people who died. And can you imagine that 20 people who died? And all this is a different way of understanding when they don't know the exact details, but they know the gist of it. They know the, the, the political core of what happened, you know? So when you start listening to, this, to, to, to these understandings and then try to, to, to get together all the different, all the different sources, um, well, you not only have a different perspective of the problem, but then you have different tools to confront the official version with what, with what it's supposed to do, you know? So this file in, in itself, has um, a lot of uh, a lot of contradictions because, for instance, it was supposed to find out only the origin of the fire, and in the conclusions, 
this guy, the the, the detective, the, the the guy who is who's uh, investigating, says that it is not possible to know the exact place of the fire. But for some reason, he says that he knows the exact time, and it's six a.m. sharp. You know, which makes no sense at all because you it, it's like you know. You, you, you know when it started, but you don't know wh where it started, and there is n absolutely no argument to say why he knows that it started at, 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 point, at that point. So this is just about putting together certain parts of, of their story to make it credible. And when you, when you confront the rigidity of this kind of narrative with, um, with all the unknowns that, that are there, it's obvious that they are producing an institutional lie. An institutional lie uh, which purpose is not to create problems from, for, the, for the mining company and to, to have the population in peace you know, as soon as possible. Hmm. I'd, I'd like to read a, a, a paragraph. This is from pages 30 to 31. You're describing um, uh, one of the news reporters' uh, work and stories. And you say, the reporter saw the mouth and face of Jose Linares, the same Linares who didn't get himself out until the end because he was getting his fellow miners out from one of the deepest levels. And that quick glimpse was enough for him to know the man's feelings. This is the quote from the reporter. The reporter writes, he smiles constantly and shows the same indifference towards life as our ancestor called Timok, while being tortured on the rack. He even resembles him. End quote. Your narrative continues, oh, so he was Indian. That's why the reporter could categorically assert that Linares' life was worth nothing, not even to Linares himself. So this is one of the very few moments, it seems, in the archive where an ever-present racism seems to reveal, reveal itself. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the role of racism in the atrocity and the process of excavating it from the archive. Yeah, several times there are mentions of this, this kind of prejudice from journalists and um, from the, the, the people uh, around the mine that they say like, no, this, these miners don't, don't even appreciate their own life. They, they go every day to the mine knowing that they might die this, that day and they are really brave and they, and they just uh, accept this as part of their fate. And this is a, uh, this is a sort of discourse that has existed in, in, in Mexican culture in different ways that even Octavio Paz uh, uh, uses in, in the Labyrinth of Solitude. This idea that the Mexican does not fear death, that the Mexican laughs in the face of death. And this is always said by people, by people that are not risking their lives. They are talking about other people's lives as, you know, they, they don't mind dying, you know. And this is a way in which this, this practice of creating first-class citizens and second-class citizens become part of the culture, become, become part of what is acceptable in, in many ways, what is acceptable in how much money you make, in, the, in, the, in how safe your work environment is, in how that the law um, behaves in relation to your problems, in, in relation to, to your life. And not very often they, are say, they, they say it that clear as that journalist was saying it. It's just something that is uh, behind all their statements and, be, and behind the, the way the institutions are, are proceeding. But that journalist, in that sense, he was as, as useful, as in, interesting as, for instance, the President of the United States is in, the, in terms that is not hiding the prejudices, <laughs> that, is, that is just expressing the racism without without any filter, thinking that it's not racism, but something true, that you know just by looking at the face of the people, look, that you know just looking at, at the color of their skin. And, and uh, I think if, if uh, the majority of miners uh, had not been 
of uh, of indigenous descent or indigenous appearance, um, they would not have been abandoned in a, in a mass grave uh, with no markings and, and with no way of remembering them. You know, and this is another another instance of what we are saying: impunity is not an accident. Impunity is something that happens as a consequence of certain ways in which in which we understand normality, certain ways in which we understand the role of one of, of different kinds of lives in society. I hope you don't mind, I'm gonna have a cigarette. I don't mind at all. No, no, I'm saying to all the people. <laughs> Impunity as, uh, as kind of an administrative continuation of the very material violence uh, that, you know, ruined these people's lives. Um, and you have a chapter called The Women's Fire. And for me, this chapter is this shattering testimony to the insidious, vi insidious violence of the law on its very uh, seemingly mundane. Um, and it's even its pretense to be caring, right? The law's pretense to actually uh, care about other people. Um, but the ways in which it crushes, humiliates um, these women in its very point of contact with them, right? Um, and there's one moment in particular that really struck me where um, on page 56, you write about Maria Luz Barrios of um, Tlapujawa, uh, and you include a parenthetical that has a direct quote that appears from one of the legal documents that says, quote, she knows not which state, end quote, right? So she doesn't know the name of the state in which she lives. And the way in which that's stated, it makes me think this language is trying to indicate something about the ignorance of the woman, right? The fact that she doesn't know the name of the state that she lives in. But for me, this uh, seems to contain a very vital information about survival and subversion, about state boundaries as colonial instruments of violence that do not define her. And in fact, I was thinking about um, Jose Rabasa's book, Tell Me the Story of How I Conquered You. And he talks about the concept of elsewheres and trying to look through colonial documents to see uh, the possibility of other worlds elsewhere, as he, he tries to call them conceptually, that are inconceivable from the European colonizing view, but that still in that point of contact of colonial violence, uh, the people in resistance against that violence were able to uh, leave traces of. Um, and, and I kind of thought about this moment of uh, Maria Luis Barrios, knowing exactly where she lives, right? Yeah. But the state not accepting or like interpreting her knowledge of exactly where she lives as a kind of ignorance. I was wondering no. if you could talk about some of that. No, no, no. It's it's really interesting that you say that because uh, this is one of those points in which is in which the, that judicial file is saying inadvertently, not on purpose, more than what the, what the file is trying to say. What the file is just trying to say is, look, we were thorough. We were really thorough in in finding uh, who were the real, the, the, the real uh, relatives of, of the miners so that the, the money would go to the right people. And this is maybe the longest part of the whole judicial file. Many, many dozens of interviews with, with wives mainly, sometimes with, with the mothers of the, of the miners, but it, it's 98% uh, of that is women. And they ask them, if they are mujeres in tacha, which is if you are a woman, I don't know exactly how to translate it without a, a, a without stain, and on if you are an unstained uh, women, or if you were like li living uh, uh, outside the the boundary of marriage, a lot of personal questions, so that they would prove that they were not trying to steal money from the company. And that, that is the, the most extensive job of the people doing the, the, doing the, the, the investigation, you know? And, and yes, of course, what you're saying, probably uh, people were just saying what they wanted, what they wanted to hear in, in a way, because they, they were just reduced to this mass in which the the judicial voice the judicial the the judicial writing 
is just uh, flattening all these different stories to uh, one register of probable liars and very ignorant people who uh, to, to whom we, we just have to throw something, you know? And now and then you see uh, certain specks of, of inconformity or rebellion in the way they, they are responding to this. But it's really difficult to, to know this because the way that, we, that the file got to us is just uh, filtered through the, through the lens, this racist bureaucratic lens of the law. And um, at the beginning of the book, you mentioned the existence of oral accounts given by minors and their families and two cronicas and a novel that were all written years afterwards. But it seems as if they don't, you don't engage with them or interrogate them in, in a similar way. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about those sources and what you found in them. Well, the first thing that I would say is that um, in, in terms of the, the oral, oral memory of this, it's just a, a lot of people knew new things, knew the basic story. Um, but there are two pieces written by former miners, which are the cronicas. One of them is by Felix Castillo, who is a journalist nowadays in, in Mexico, and who learned about this story when he was working in the mines. And he wrote it, and he gave it to me before publishing it, and then, then, then he published it. And the other one by Jose Luis Islas, who, who actually, he was working in that mine at the time of the accident, and he was the grandfather of uh, a friend of mine in Pachuca. And that one was never published. So this guy told me, hey, I have a, I have a, cro a chronica that my grandfather wrote about this. And the interesting thing is, pretty much the information in these two chronicas uh, matched. It, it, it really, they, they, they work together uh, really well. And the other, the other uh, long text that existed, let's say a comprehensive uh, version of the events, was the novel El Doble Nueve by Rodolfo Benavides, which is a really interesting case. Rodolfo Benavides was uh, a writer from Hidalgo, from my state, who was in the 60s and 70s, was a sort of bestseller. He wrote um, a book that was a pre-New Age kind of book called uh, Dramaticas Profecias de la Gran Pirámide, like the dramatic prophecies of the Great Pyramid that I have not read, but in the 70s, apparently, it, it, it sold like a, a half a million uh, copies, something like that. So he was a, a, a super successful writer. And at some point, he decided that he wanted to do a different kind of story even, even if it was not going to be a success, which is, it, it, it was not. And he wrote this story, this same story. And, and I think that he, actually he saw the same sources that I was, that I was seeing because it, it has a lot of the same information. But what I learned from this, from this version, what, what Rodolfo Benavides wrote, was that I had to respect the silence of the people that were never able to say something and that I have to give way to the institutional silences instead of trying to fill in. Because what Rodolfo Benavides does in this specific sort of novel, because there are many kinds of novel, but what he does is that he has this information and he, does, and he decides that since there's a lot of information that is not there, he's just gonna fill in. And he end, ends up being really condescending he repeats also this kind of thing, this kind of thinking that the, the, the miners are really people who don't, don't fear death and they are ready to do every single day when they go to the mine, they are ready to, to face their death. And also, even in, in, in terms of the font of the, of the novel, it's really interesting because when he's reproducing the language of the miners, Whenever they are using an expression that is a popular expression, he puts that expression in italics, you know, which is a way to distance himself from this uneducated popular language. And that distance to me is also a distance from the possible truth that, 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 that people could have, been, uh, could have been trying to express, you know. 
um, so it's a very it, it it's 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 a very interesting work. But as as I said, it's it's really condescending, and 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 it tried to to just not let the the horrible silence of this story to take its place, which was for me a, a priority. You know. There's the, the book's title is taken from a moment uh, where you're describing a photograph. Could you tell us a bit about that and that phrase? Yeah, well, this, um, after six days, they open the mine and some people go down and they find that this whole week, several miners have been surviving down there and that they have been surviving leaking water from a, a, a wall, that, that, that there was like uh, just water going down and they find um, scraps of food that, that were still there. But they are in absolute darkness and they don't know if they are gonna be rescued at, at some point. After several days there, they start walking around trying to see if the phones work to call to, call, uh, to the, sur the surface. And but by that, um, by the way, the conclusions of the investigations say that the phones were working <laughs> perfectly, which is not true, obviously. So eventually, they are uh, rescued, and they are taken to the surface. And someone takes a picture of them. And in the picture, the picture is taken after they have been through a medical exam. And the medical exam says that they were in perfect state. They were like uh, starving, but in a, but in, per in perfect health, which is, for me, one of one of the key, uh, the key phrases of this whole story. That is what the institution said of the people who survived one week. Uh, with no food and with no light and with, with no hope, apparently. That they were in perfect health, but you know, starving, but, but in perfect health. And I thought this is exactly like the perfect kind of, of worker. That it, this is how these powerful people saw, the, uh, saw the, the, this individual. So they take a picture of them and that picture illuminates something, but it also is a picture that is forever frozen in, in, in a moment of silence. Because we see them that they are dressed all in white. They gave them the same, the, 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 the same uh, kind of uh, clothes. And they have been, uh, they washed and, and apparently they are healthy. And you, you can't tell what they are thinking. But I only dare to, to speculate about the, the sight of one of them. That, I, that he doesn't seem in perfect health, at least not in emotional perfect health. I thought, I thought that he seemed like he was silently furious, but that he was not able to express it. And for me, that that face is one of the possibilities in the way that you were reading what the other woman was saying during the cross-examination, uh, cross one of the possibilities that we have to have a, a gaze into what was happening to the people suffering this, you know? And um, anyway, so yeah, that, that was that, that, that picture that is, is really impressive. This is this is a fire that took place a hundred years ago, um, but there have been very intense mining uh, disasters and atrocities in the past twenty years. Could you tell us a bit about? Uh, I think one of the most well known was Pasta de Conchos, and and in what way uh, this story repeated itself or didn't? Well, it's uh, the the thing is that. Um, it's not like a lightning that hits two times in the same in the same place as a, as a sort of miracle or as a, a sort of weird accident. It's more a part of um, a habit, you know, an institutional habit 
it's not like pasta the conscious happened because it was a horrible a horrible accident that who could have thought about this you know a lot of people could have thought about it because it has been happening all the time since since the sort of uh, colonial period you know and it's it was not as well registered in other times and now it has more resonance in in the public sphere but it's something that has been happening precisely because this kind of individuals are seen as indi as disposable individuals as, dispos as as disposable lives you know so i wasn't uh, actually well i i did this the, the first stage of the research before pasta, pasta conscious happened but uh very conscious that this was in the core of the way the mexican institutions work in 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 regards to to, to certain citizens you know? okay. maddie how are we doing on time do you want to open it up for questions from everyone in attendance yeah um I'll say if, if you have any questions, um, you can go ahead and write them in the chat or you can raise your hand. Um, there's a little button to do that uh, down at the bottom of the participants pane. Um, either way, and I can call on you. Um, you can also just take a, a few minutes to think about it and um, maybe John and Yuri, you can keep talking a bit uh, while, while our guests gather their thoughts. Judy, what did you think when the, the mining collapse took place in Chile and the response of the Chilean state and the media around that? Well, uh, I remember talking with a friend of mine who is a geologist in, in Chile in, in that time. And, and he was saying something similar to what, what we are saying. It's like the, um, the government took this an opportunity to, to prove how how concerned they were with the, their citizens, and also um, because this was something that was uh, what was repeated a lot there, like how the American intervention helped to save uh, all these lives. And well, my friend was telling me, "Yeah, it's great that this, uh, these guys were saved," but you know, again, this is not something. It's not like the first time this happens. And this has happened a lot of other times without the president being outside there saying, I'm gonna, I wanna dig a hole and go down and, and bring, bring them up. And so it, it, was, uh, it was really important that, that they were saved, but it was also used as a sort of photo op, you know. And we have, um, that's, uh, we have to be always kind of suspicious of, of this kind of uh, triumphalistic uh, savior uh, discourses, you know. Yuri, I have a question. Mm -hmm. um, so, how does it? I mean, just as a, as the writer of this book, how does it feel to have released it right now, while uh, so much is going on in the world, but seems very connected to what's what's happening in the book? Well, um, I I have two books come out in the in the same year that are really different, or in the same period of, of one year, uh, even if it was not in the same year. One was this, and the other one was a book of uh, science fiction short stories. And for me, it was uh, really interesting to work in those books uh, side by side, because in the in the case of the El Bordo book what I was doing was I was trying to find the exact language to talk about this, respecting what I didn't know and respecting the language in which this story came to me. So I was really constrained by, this, by, by, by these different sources. And at the same time, I was writing all these uh, science fiction stories, which were just the opposite. I was just trying to play with language, but at the same time, thinking about certain things that are happening right now in, in our world. Because th this is one of the great things about science fiction, that science fiction is always taking the present condition of, of our world and, and taking it to a, a certain extreme or to a certain point, a certain logical conclusion 
uh, of, of what is happening. So for me, it was really interesting to think um, to have these opposite ways of trying to understand what is what is ha happening right now. One also almost in a theoretical way, which is uh, what science fiction does, and one really grounded in 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 the data. And this thinking about this this these two books in in what, what what's happening right now in this in this sort of absolutely unlikely situ situation in which in which we are you know but at this on one hand it feels like a science fiction situation what we are living a pandemic on the other hand it is the logical conclusion of many things that we have been doing to the world and to ourselves and to and and to our people you know so um literature allows you to see beyond what what can be what 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 can be put in numbers and in, and in and in hard data, and the historical investigation gives you all gives you a background of why this is not a surprise, why this is something that could have been seen. You, you know the way in which we relate to nature, the, the way in which, in, in which we live crammed on, on top of, of each other, the way in which uh, our health institutions have been, have been destroyed because uh, your health is not as valuable as the health of Nelson Rockefeller who had six, six different heart, heart transplants, you know? Um, so, uh, it, it is uh, it, it 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 has it has been it has been in, in a way uh, a sort of a way of di dialogue with with what is happening you know i love how those two two works fit together that that makes a lot of sense um we've got a couple of questions here in the group chat so first from lilian you've written in fiction and nonfiction. do you have a preference Huh. I, I don't know if it's uh, about the preference. I have written in nonfiction in other in 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 other places in in newspapers and in magazines, but mainly in books. It, I, I am more as a, a, a fiction writer. Uh, I respect a lot the the work of historians and the work of of journalists, but I recognize my limitations in in those terms. I have been trying to focus more in the way in which fiction talks about about reality uh, in that in that it takes um, it it takes a it sees reality in it says the it sees the part of reality that cannot be demonstrated or or put it or put in numbers but that is but that is a truth as important as the one that you can that, that, that you can demonstrate. Um, let me give you a, a different example. I, a while ago, I was talking with a, a friend from Colombia, and he was telling me that he loved Garcia Marquez, but that he didn't like that when Garcia Marquez was was describing the massacre in uh, a massacre in a hundred years in solitude. He said, Garcia Marquez says that it's 4,000 dead people. And that thing happened, but we know that it was, it was not 4,000. And so he's lying. And I was telling him, he's not lying. He's telling the truth in the way literature tells the truth. That number is a poetic number. It's not, it's, it's not a, an actual number that, could be, that can be used in the way a journalistic investigation is using those numbers. It's a way to use that number as a superlative, as a way to, exp to express how terrible that massacre was. You know? um, anyway, all this is to say that if I have to, to pick between uh, one, one or the other, I would say that I'm a fiction writer, although I'm not gonna stop uh, writing these other kinds of pieces grounded in in research and my next project actually is a sort of a combination of both 
sorry, this is a, a tangent, but I'm gonna do it really, really fast. That I'm thinking, um, well, when I got to New Orleans, I learned that uh, the Mexican president, Benito Juarez, uh, lived in New Orleans for two years. And nobody has any documentation about the, the years when he was here. So this is my new project that I'm investigating about uh, what what happened in the, in those two years because right after those two years is when he went back to Mexico and created the the laws that and divided the that separated uh, church and state and I have been thinking what did he see here in New Orleans that was key in his thinking because he was here two years and we know a few things we need we know that he worked rolling tobacco. And we know the dates in which he was in in which he was here, but when I was reading this short autobiography, he is telling with very with a lot of detail um, what day he arrived here from Havana and how he was arrested in Oaxaca, taken to Veracruz from Veracruz to Havana, and when he says, and then I arrived in New Orleans and I stayed there two years and I went back then went back to Mexico and and I was saying. He has not, not one single line about this. And in this case, I wanna do the opposite of what I did with the, with the mind book. I wanna interpret that silence because for me, in this case, this is, this is a, a, different, a, different kind of, a different kind of silence um, in which it allows me to imagine what he was seeing here and, and how, it was informing his 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 his, his uh, worldview, his his political uh, convictions. Anyway, it was a long answer, long rambling answer, because I have been, as I told you at the beginning, really nervous with this presentation. But um, I would say that I'm more a fiction writer. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you answered the question of uh, what you're working on next, because I was going to ask that if you didn't. So it was not a tangent at all. Uh, one more question here we have in the chat from Alisa. Was it hard to synthesize from so many different sources and how did you keep yourself organized? Any docs it was especially hard to find or get a hold of? Well, it was, it was really hard. Um, first of all, the judicial file is a lot, of, a lot of legalese, you know, so you have to navigate that. Um, and well, I had different kinds, dif different kinds of files, and I had files where I would put certain, certain I, I would transcribe certain parts of the file that were important to me in terms of what what we were saying, like the things that the file was not saying on the or the moments where they were having like contradictions, and I had different files with all the newspapers that I. And that I searched, and I had the files with the with the with, with the chronicas and with the, all the all, all the different sources that I could that I could find about this. And this question is is interesting for me because it has to do with what was my purpose in in writing this book in its actual form. The first. The, the previous form of this investigation is a PhD dissertation. When I was in Berkeley, and I was with Jose Rabasa, a very, a very dear uh, professor that, that John just, just mentioned, I was taking a, um, a class with, with him. And, and he was uh, gonna be my dissertation director, even though I didn't know what was gonna be my dissertation, but I wanted him to be. And I told him, I don't wanna do a literary study in the way like, oh, the poetry of Octavio Paz or the, the way in which Carlos Fuentes uses the second person, something like that. I wanted to do something that was relevant for me and that was relevant for, for my, my community. And I decided that I was gonna analyze the judicial file as fiction. That was my first idea. I'm gonna use this file that is supposed to be the legal truth, the historical truth, the official truth as fiction, because for me, it's really obvious that they are 
using certain fiction, uh, certain tools of fiction to create to create a, a, a certain truth, you know, and um, and uh, and that first version of this. It's a very academic version. It's a, it's a there is a linguistic analysis and and it's a and it's a sort of political indictment in, in that sense. But you don't have a story there. And I thought that even though a lot of people in my community in Pachuca know versions of this story, that I wanted to 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 offer another comprehensive version of this story, because there were only two comprehensive versions of the whole thing: the judicial file and the novel uh, written by, by Rodolfo Benavides. And I, and I wanted to do that. And myself, I used uh, one novel as a, um, as a rhythmic model, I would say. And that is a chronicle of, 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 of a death foretold by Garcia Marquez, in which you start in the first page and then you can finish until the, the last page because he, the, the events just are coming one after the other. And I thought, I want to tell that story that way, as if I knew what I'm talking about, even though I don't know, because this happened one century ago, but acknowledging what I don't know as part of this really uh, compelling, compelling story. So, um, so there are two stages, the stage in which this was just an investigation and I, and, and it, and, and I just uh, tore apart all the sources and I offered those sources in, in, in pieces in the, in the dissertation and this second version in which I took all the pieces in the best way I could understand them and put them back again together, you know? So it was really interesting to 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 work with uh, different uh, with different ways of organizing the information. Any last questions here? We've got a couple more minutes. John, any other questions from you? Yuri, mm. could you think of other texts where you think? the operation of silence or how silence is respected or uh, in some way engaged with um, that you could recommend for people? Well, um, there is this book that is translated into English, but I really, I'm, I'm really not sure what's the title in English by Rodolfo Walsh, a great Argentinian writer called Operacion Masacre, uh, in which he describes all this uh, certain period of Argentinian history and specifically during one coup, uh, one of the coups in, in, in Argentina, how certain people were kidnapped by the state uh, and, and disappeared. And in this, in this book, Rodolfo Walsh, one of the things that he does is that he acknowledges him as the, the recreator of all this story, as, as as the filter of, of, of this story, you know. So in, in some way, he's challenging the possibility of getting to the to the bottom of this because because of the, all the, the constraints that power has put on, on, on this story. But at the same time, he reclaims the right to tell this story as a concerned party of it because it's his country and because it's his memory, you know. It's like, it, it, it's in the same way, impunity is not an accident, it's not something that just happens. Memory is not something that just happens in, in, in our mind. Memory is, is, is something that uh, requires an active participation uh, um, on, on our side. And that was something that, uh, that, that I learned from, from Rodolfo Walsh. I, I would recommend that. Uh, That's excellent. Excellent book. I just thought about um, Janet Malcolm has a book called The Silent Woman, um, where she uh, ostensibly approaches the relationship between Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes, um, Plath's suicide. And um, but then what she actually really does is write about the biographers of both Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes. Um, and in the course of doing that, you know, she's an amazing writer. She tells an incredible story or series of stories. 
Um, and she also wrote these, these very interesting reflections on the nature of biography and what it means to write nonfiction uh, or, or attempt to write true things about uh, people's lives. And, and in this case, where the absolute center of everything is the silent woman, right, is, is Sylvia Plath, who, uh, of course, did a lot of speaking and a lot of writing in her life, but her, her, uh, her death, which moves her into this plane of silence about which then everyone fights. All right, I think this is a, a great last question. I was gonna ask this anyway, but from Lilium, what was the last book you've read or recommend? And I, I'll ask that of both John and Yuri. Um, well, I, I'm always reading several books at a time. And one of the things that I have been doing is that every morning I have been trying, I have been reading just a few pages of an impossible book. I did this the last year with uh, Don Quixote, which is a book that I read a lot of years ago, and, but I decided to read it in, in detail in the last year. So every morning after uh, walking my dogs, that you just heard one of them, um, and the first thing that I, uh, that I did when I, I came back was reading Don Quixote some, just a few pages every day and take notes. And I read it with, with, with uh, great detail. And when I finished, I said, what am, what am I going to do? And I chose another impossible book that I read many years ago, but with, with no attention, just in, in a really superficial way, which is called Palinuro de Mexico by Fernando del Paso, which is one of those novels that is that it's what they called novela total, in which they created everything. They tried to create their own language and, and create a, 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 a theory of, of history and literature with, without being, being theory. And it's uh, an amazing book. It's, it's a, a really, really, really great book. It's one of those authors that is not very well read outside of the Spanish-speaking world because, because it's, it's so difficult to translate, even though there is a translation of, of this book in English. So, that's the one I was thinking right now, um, Palinuro de Mexico by, by Fernando del Paso. Um, but also I decided to read another thing that I read when I was, when I was uh, younger um, by Lawrence Durrell. I decided to read in English uh, the, quart the Alexandria Quartet. And I have been reading Justine, the first book of this, uh, of this series of books by Lawrence Durrell, which is a great book. And at the same time, it's really interesting to, to see the way in which, uh, in which it has changed uh, how you understand the other, how you understand uh, the... the the cultures that challenge your own culture, you know? So, so it's, it's really interesting to, to read that. Those are the, the books that I'm reading side by side. By side right now. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I read a novel, which that was amazing. I definitely recommend, but also uh, takes up a bunch of the themes of the conversation of tonight, of the unsayable and silences of a novel called At the Full and Change of the Moon by uh, Dion Brand. Excellent. Well, well, let me just, just uh, say one last recommendation. Of course. Because I was rereading a book of poetry that, uh, of an American poet that, that I really love, that is Dennis Smith. And he has uh, a great poem about um, a dinosaur movie made in, in, a, in, a, in a black ghetto. And he is just describing how would it be if we shot a movie about dinosaurs in a black neighborhood. And it's just a whole reflection on the ways in which people would look in, in a different way at, at a disaster. And in the end, he's saying, but what I would know in this movie is that the black kid is not gonna, is not gonna die at the end. And it's, uh, and it's an extremely beautiful poem, Dennis Smith. I love Dennis Smith, fantastic poet. Um, all right, well, I love to end on a note of uh, just sharing the love around to other books. So um, thank you both for, for those great recommendations. We'll be checking those out. 
thank you all so much for coming tonight. Yuri and John, thank you for being here. Um, this is such a great conversation. I'm, I'm really glad I got to be a part of it. So thank you. And uh, thank you. yeah, thank we, you. Can't, we can't really give you the applause that you deserve, but um, you know, Applause! <laughs> yeah. No, I'm, I'm really happy that we did this and I, I really appreciate that people, uh, that, that all the people that, that Caroline took the time to do this. I think when, when people take time from their lives to talk about books, uh, it's like we are not doomed, that we still, we, we still have things to do. <laughs> you heard it here first, we're not doomed, we've got books. We've got work. Yes. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you have a wonderful night. Um, thanks again. We hope to uh, have you back in the store someday soon when it's safe. Yuri and John, standing invitation to read with us um, whenever we can do that again. Um, and uh, everyone take care. Have a great night. And um, we'll see you soon, hopefully. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.